I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to another episode of the Multilingual Mamas podcast. Today, we are going to talk to Sergio Loza, who is the director of the Spanish Heritage Program at the University of Oregon. He is the son of Mexican immigrants and the grandson of two Bracero workers. He is also a strong advocate for educational excellence for all marginalized populations, particularly U.S. Latinos. Although Sergio has expertise in various fields, Today, we're going to be learning more about critical language awareness and how we as parents can foster it in our children uh, with the hopes that they can grow up to be strong, self-affirmed, multilingual, and multicultural individuals. Thanks for being here, Sergio. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to um, have this conversation with y'all. And, and thank you for all the work that you do to um, you know, spread awareness to the community. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> can't do it without, without, it would just be us two talking without you. Exactly. We need our guests. So let's get started with your personal experience with bilingualism. Uh, Tell us about yourself and your language background. What languages did you speak growing up? And when and how did you learn other languages? Yeah, so my own personal story, um, you know, begins with uh, my parents. Um, They moved here from uh, Mexico. Uh, in the 80s. So my dad's from Guanajuato and my mom is from Durango. And so they both, you know, came to the U.S. and then met in Phoenix, oh. Arizona. And um, and so I, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and, and, you know, growing up in, in, you know, as we all know, Arizona is very conservative um, in many ways. And one of the ways in which that's sort of encoded is through language, language policies. And yeah. so I, I grew up during the era of English only um, in Arizona. And, and that was that was really hard for me. Um, uh, you know, I, I so before English only, if folks aren't familiar with those laws that came about in about 98, 2000, um, I was already in school, obviously, and and so I wasn't a bilingual um, program in public school. So it, it was meant to have uh, immigrant children who only spoke Spanish um, receive education in Spanish and kind of gradually work their way toward learning English. And so I was caught caught in the middle of that. And when that law came came uh, to be, um, everything changed in public education, and I was kind of thrown into English only. And that was really, really hard for me. Um, even though I was born in, in Phoenix, you know, our pr- primary home language is, is is Spanish. It continues to be Spanish. And so I didn't know any English, right? When I went to kindergarten, first grade, second grade, <laughs> and yeah. third grade is when that, that law came about. And it made things really difficult for me because our teachers weren't allowed to speak Spanish to us. It was illegal, right? So it was against the law for teachers to speak Spanish to us, right? And so I went from liking school to really, really hating and loathing school. (laughs) And so everything, I just remember after third grade, I just, you know, everything was was horrible. Um, And I think slowly, you know, as as one grows up, you know, I think think that these laws really uh, make things um, sort of evident in one's own life. And, And so as a child, you start to wonder, 
well, why am I different, right? What, why, why am I not like the other kids? Why am I having such a hard time, right? Why are the te- why do the teachers get frustrated with me? Because you know I have a hard time spelling because or eagle, right? Like all, all those all those words that are really difficult um, for you know kids who speak Spanish that are learning English. Those words are tough. English. And, and so and so my dad. <laughs> Well, actually, my, my my dad is really educated. He went to um, uh, the University of, you know, Guanajuato. And so when he immigrated over here, you know, none of that, like, really transferred. So, he, yeah. you know, he, he's a blue-collar, you know, kind of guy. Yeah. Um, and so, but he, my dad was always really smart. And so that's why I inherited from my father, right, his, his intellect. Um, even though my dad, uh, you know, was working manual labor jobs and things like that to make ends meet um he the conversations I had with my father were you know always very intellectual since I was a little kid and so my dad would teach me like no no mijo es iagle es bicause right and, and so that's how I learned to to spell you know in English and um you know I'm really thankful for my dad for all those little tricks um and so yeah so so you know growing up um I you know just like self-hate you know just wondering why can't I just be normal you know why can't I just be white honest honestly like that's what it came down to right um just because things were just so tough and then you know I remember being in high school um and I was speaking more English and Spanish um still talking to my parents and obviously but you know my my ethno my ethno-linguistic identity was very much you know embedded within English at that point um, then all these horrible laws started to come about like around 2007, 2008, 2009 in Arizona, like um, SB 1070, that essentially gave police officers right. the power to act as immigration immigration uh, agents. Mm-hmm. And so they would, uh, you know, racially profile you, they would pull you over, check your papers. Um, and, and there were even laws that like, you know, Arizona made English its official language earlier than that, too. Um, so that was hard. And then also they, I remember there was a law where they wanted to, so like if you were an undocumented immigrant and you got into a horrible car accident and you needed life-saving, you know, med- emergency medical attention, they would be able to deny it to you because of your immigrant status. So, so all of those things, you know, growing up, um, you know, the and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to kind of extend this, but I also grew up in oh, the neighborhood. Yeah. In, in West Phoenix, I grew up in the neighborhood of West Phoenix where Sheriff Joe Arpaio, which, you know, he was really famous around the country for being like hardcore on crime and DUIs and also on, on undocumented immigrants, you know, he would go and do redadas in my neighborhood. He would go do roundups, right? Like if you just like think about that metaphor, right? Like with, as if my community were animals, right? He, him and his, um, you know, volunteer um, sheriff's posse, they, they would go into like our neighborhoods and they would go into the, you know, local grocery store and they would, you know, get there with these vans and they would just kind of round people up and deport them, you know, so so we would be listening to the radio in my dad's truck and then, you know, we'd be listening to Spanish radio and then, you know, a news flash would come through saying like, oh, hay una redada en la 75 y la y la Thomas, you know, gente, cuídense, no, eviten esa área, you know, so you know, that, that's what that's what I grew up. I grew up with that, right? So for me, so like people write about this stuff in books and, and you know, kind of theorize about it, but like, you know, I lived it, right? That was my upbringing. Um, and so, you know, just growing up kind of angry about that and, and just how disheartening it, it was sometimes to like, 
be, you know, Mexican American. Um, you know, it, it kind of seemed like we never got a win. <laughs> it was like one thing after the other after the other. Um, and and so 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 I think in in some ways um, that kind of made you feel a certain way about Spanish, right? It, it, it's it's very like multi-faced. Like it's not just you know either you're proud or you're you know sh you know um, or you're um, ashamed. It's it's more complicated than that binary. It's like it's everything. Like you wish you wish it was something else, but you know it was very complicated emotionally. And so, yeah, I mean, everything kind of changed for me, um, kind of moving on in, in my own timeline. Um, everything changed when I went to college, um, you know, which was the whole thing. I didn't even know if I was going to go to college. <laughs> you know, our, our school system was pretty, um, you know, deficient in so many ways and underserved the Latino population in our community. I'm so sorry that all of that happened to you. It's completely unfair and... Um yeah shameful how yeah your family was treated as, as less than human in your communities and and I'm, I'm really glad that you are able to speak about it so eloquently and reflect on it with us um as you say these are real people and real children um that these laws affect um so yeah thank you for um just a quick follow-up Sergio, since you, you've left uh, Arizona too, and you've probably met other Mexican-Americans, uh, do you feel like their situation was similar to yours? Or was it, was the situation different because of what you were in the U.S.? Or I'm just curious to see what your experience has been with other people. And, well, when it comes to like the specific Arizona legislation, you know, right. it's very it's very specific, although that doesn't mean that English only didn't happen in other areas. Of right. course, it happened in California and it tried to pass in Colorado from what I remember, but I think that's very specific. But I think overall, um, just from speaking to other um, folks in Oregon, for example, right. um, you know, the, the pattern sort of repeats itself, right? right. People make them feel ashamed um, or in indirect or direct ways, they feel discriminated um, for just being the people who they are, right? You know, as we know with language ideologies, it, it doesn't have to do, it, does, it has nothing to do with language, but it has to do with people, right? So it just comes down to, you know, your your community and who you are. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it persists across many uh, contexts um, in the U.S. Um, yeah. I, I would say that for sure. Yeah, thank you for clarifying this because we do have listeners from other countries as well. So it's just important yeah. to say that this seems to be widespread all throughout the oh, United of course. States, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. 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 No, that's a really good point to make too for folks that um might not be as familiar with uh how things ha have happened in the US. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just want to also mention that um despite all those horrible things that I just talked about and, and how unfair it is. Um, I just do want to say that, well, right now I'm actually in Arizona to uh, celebrate the holidays with my family and the community is resilient. Um, we're still here. Although many people were pushed out, many people moved to New Mexico and you know back to California during the, that horrible period of time. Um, the community is thriving, it's, it's growing, it's you know tripled in the size you know, from when I left. Um, and, you know, it's not a, it's not to like, we're not victims, but, you know, we've, we've kind of, 
you know, fought back and, and you know, where we're thriving is also what I want to mention too, despite all that. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so you started to talk about it a little bit in mm-hmm. elementary school and third grade when you got thrown into English only, but just walk us through your language proficiency as you grew up and any insecurities you felt either in English or Spanish or how you were made to feel about your English or Spanish, um, whether that be in the U.S. or if you ever went back to Mexico, how you felt about speaking Spanish in Mexico? Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I do remember from that, when I was a child, obviously, English was my, um, you know, main language. Um, then I remember in high school, feeling like struggling to really uh, get across what I really wanted to say. As like many, sometimes our heritage learners come into the classroom saying just that, right? That um, they want to express like a, a a full thought or a, a full feeling and they feel, they have a hard time kind of doing it in, in Spanish sometimes, although they have many abilities and, and you know, their, their, their proficiency is awesome. Sometimes, you know, they, they want to, they feel like they can't take it that extra step. Um, th- that's a feeling I very much felt in uh, high school. Um, actually, I didn't, I didn't go to Mexico until I was, um, I want to say like 12 or maybe 13. It might have been just right before high school because my mom was undocumented. Yeah. So like, like we, 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 she couldn't go back to see um, family. She was kind of mm-hmm. stuck here. Um and so, yeah, actually, like my grandma passed away and she never saw her ever again um, since she left Mexico when she was like 17. So, so she, like, I never met my grandma, right? Uh, I barely met my grandpa when he was like 80 something. Um, and all of my dad's family moved to uh, Phoenix, including my grandma. And his dad passed away like in the 80s from like leukemia or something. So I, yeah, like I never went back to Mexico until like I was older. (laughs) So that, you know, like for people that like hear the expression, like the border separates. Yeah, like the border really does separate people. Um, Mm -hmm. That that, that was something that was very traumatic for my own mom, because like imagine feeling, feeling like abandoned by your parents. Like they sent her off like randomly. They sent her to like al otro lado, right? Like they just sent her one day. Like she came, literally she came home from school and her parents had her bags packed and said hey you're going with your sisters al otro lado and she was like wait what and she didn't say bye to her friends she didn't say bye to nobody they just said you can't yeah even though it's right there that she never saw her she never saw her mom ever again so like like people people don't understand like the the trauma that comes with um all of that like like it's hard to unpack Mm -hmm. all of that and, and how like even me like i'm you know, I'm like second generation, like my mom's a first generation immigrant, and I'm the second generation born here. And like, it kind of trickles down. And I, I never went to Mexico until I was way older. So you know. yeah, that's that reality of not being able to travel freely. Yeah. yeah, so, so, you know, like, those things matter. And, and it, it varies by individual too. Like, like that's my personal story. Right. So I, I don't have anything to compare it to like, Oh, going back to Mexico. Well, you know, I never went back until I was older. And, 
even then my family is very accepting. They were so happy to see us. Like, I don't, I don't recall any like linguistic discrimination when I went to Durango for the first time, but, um, but I, but I, I can't say that during high school, I did feel super insecure and, and I just didn't really, I, I didn't really consider Spanish to really be a part of my own identity. Um, I guess I, I took it for granted in, in some ways. And, and why wouldn't I like, look, look, look at like the system that I, like grew up in like like there's nothing about that that would ever encourage me to um be proud of yeah. Spanish right it was just like there to communicate with my family and that, that was great right that was like good enough <laughs> yeah and now as an adult you feel completely bilingual confident yeah I mean I well completely bilingual in the sense that I understand that 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 question is ideologically loaded and and what matters is is myself and 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 my personal relationship with with spanish right so you know i think in college when i learned i really educated myself on like just like how how political and um the social meaning of language um you know how that kind of plays out in, within institutions within you know at the macro level in society even at the at the sort of micro level between two people interacting like just when i became aware of, of how ideological all that is um it really helped me to understand like myself um my own position in my community um and more than anything language in my own life mm -hmm. Spanish in my own life so um like i'm fine i don't question anything about myself <laughs> you're, just, you're at peace yeah like it's 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 peaceful right like I don't I don't even get upset if anybody makes you know kind of a backhanded comment about something I do or something I say because of course like I I'm a U.S. bilingual like they're you know right so I, I don't even you know I don't even get worried if someone like corrects me or tells me something you know I I, I have like the abilities to grapple with all of that and it's fine so yeah well, we were going to ask you, <laughs> naively, <laughs> if you attended Spanish classes in college or maybe in college later, but in school, you mentioned that at some point this laws were put into place and then suddenly everything was English and nobody could speak Spanish. Can you tell us exactly when that happened for you age-wise and later in college, whether you were able to speak Spanish and what that meant for you? Yeah, so, yeah, so English only... Like, remember third grade I think third grade is when I got put into a, a class or it might have been second grade um what when, what whenever like 1998 1999 kind of was for me which was really early on um and then it was just kind of like English dominant like <laughs> all through high school um and then you know when I got to college obviously like that law doesn't matter in college right um which is still active by the way like we're still an English only state till this day we're one of the last ones um yeah and when I got to college man college was really hard I I was I felt really alone like nobody from my high school went to college hardly and even then we were all separated in different you know programs and colleges across campus Arizona State is a huge place um has like 80,000 students um and so I felt alone I felt really alone I felt really different um I was an English major and so I remember like 
participate like opening I never participated in class and the one day I opened my mouth and <laughs> it was like a restoration period um theater class about like you know English theater <laughs> and I remember I opened my mouth to, to like say my opinion and I remember everybody turned around and I remember like I felt really self-conscious about like sounded sounding hood like I felt like my English sounded really hood you know what I mean <laughs> Because um, I came from the hood, you know, I came from West Phoenix, and um, and I remember everybody looked at me kind of, you know, like, weird, and I felt super self-conscious, um, and, you know, obviously, like, obviously the way I'm speaking now is not the way I spoke fresh out of high school, um, uh, you know, and, and then I took my first Spanish class, an advisor told me, like, hey, you're Mexican, you need a language requirement. Oh yeah, go go to Spanish. You know, it'll be an easy A, right? So they sent me to um, my first heritage Spanish course, and I was like, oh well, let's see what this is about. You know, mm-hmm. Spanish class like that that sounds terribly boring. You know, in, in high school I took French and I hated that too because not that not not hating on French like the language, but like the course was you know horribly boring. And so I went I went to. Um, Spanish class and <laughs> the first day of class I remember the teacher uh you know uh Latina woman um was like okay chicos no nos vamos a presentar en la clase and, and so she she had us like divide our names and syllables <laughs> as we went around the room saying what our names you know who we are and I remember I went said he oh you know like yeah I knew you were gonna oh. say that oh. and she goes no she's like it's Sergio, classe, Sergio, and then everyone clapped, and I felt like an idiot, and I was like, oh, well, here we go, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's before uh, Sarah Boudry um, inherited that heritage program, it was like a different program back in like, like 2009-ish, right, so, so then, um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was my introduction to Spanish, and then I remember getting, being corrected for using Aiga, um and I remember feeling terribly confused I'm like wait a minute I thought it was Aiga and she's like no it's Aya no existe Aiga and I was like really yeah. <laughs> really that's kind of weird um you know yeah super confused and she didn't explain yeah. anything about she just told that, me that anything. Like, I was like okay well I guess I'll write Aya right and so like now I don't say Aiga for anything you know like they they kind of erase that from my repertoire but other than that so that was that's the negative stuff but those classes were great because I didn't feel alone anymore in college I found a lot of friends like it was so nice like I felt like I was at home um I felt I met so many friends and then we would take like the next class and then the next class hey are you taking this literature class all right let's go take that literature class oh you're gonna take this linguistics class and and so it was it was amazing like I, I met I met good people uh, other other you know like Latino folks um you know in, in those in just Spanish right so um and then you know obviously I took advanced linguistics course and that's why I started learning about sociolinguistics and I remember taking this course in particular called Spanish in the Southwest. And so I learned everything about like New Mexican Spanish and like, you know, Spanish, you know, in the U.S. That I got is a thing. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> linguistics professor, um, you know, uh, Cerron Palomino, Alvaro Cerron Palomino se llama, mi eh, still professor there. He's like, no, es que tú no estás mal, es que blah, 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 blah. And, and, and I remember it just made me feel so reaffirmed, like so 
legitimized like it just it just like this feeling came over me like oh wow like if anybody ever like messes with me ever again I can just explain to them like you know why they're wrong and and it was it was like just that 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 really made me feel a certain way and it was really interesting to me and I and I realized that I was actually good at it I was really good at sociolinguistics like I had a talent for it and I remember thinking like wow I could really do this for like for the rest of my life if I really wanted like I'd never found a subject on campus that was like that um and so then I applied for grad school and I got in I got a TA ship and then then I began the real work to like think about like sociopolitics and you know all of those really complex things um that came afterward yeah I'm gonna follow up on that question and and ask what made you decide to pursue this career in Spanish education Spanish heritage language education? So I think it was like the talent that I saw in myself. I was like, wow, like I'm finally good at something. And my my professors really seem to like, you know, also kind of acknowledge that as well. I got like really high grades and it, it was really nice. You know, I, you know, in high school, I scraped by with a 2.0 GPA. Like I got D's and C's and maybe a B. So I wasn't the great, greatest student in high school, but in, but in college, and, and, you know, I had, I had almost a 4.0, right? So, so I was doing really well in college and it was because I found something I was passionate about. And, and I think that's, for me, that's when um, I, I, started, I started really feeling encouraged and, and seen. And then I remember asking my, my professor, este Alvaro Cerron Palomino, I asked him, hey, like, well, what if I went to like get a master's? And he goes, ¿Por qué no un, un doctorado? And I was like, huh? me me a doctor like like I couldn't even I, I didn't even think I was going to go to college he's like ¿Por qué no? you 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 can be a professor and just like the 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 sort of like of matter of way yeah. he said I was like what are you kidding me okay so then I I worked up the courage and I applied for <laughs> you know grad school and I got in and 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 then it was just doing the work and and having really great mentors in my life. Uh, Sarah Boudry then came like around 2014 into my life, and you know she really. I don't know. We've never talked about it, but I'm assuming she saw something in me, and and she kind of like, you know, made a did a good job, and and she committed herself to like really mentoring me, and 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 I think that when you're you know, brown, you know, coming from a, a part of the neighborhood that like no, that everyone sees as problematic from people just judging you your whole life and, you know, you not believing in yourself and just like hardship after hardship after hardship. I think, it, I think you need good mentors to, to make those, you know, people like me succeed. And I think that's a, a key part of it, mentoring. Yeah, so so I'll always be eternally grateful to all the wonderful people in my life that like they didn't have to, but they put in a lot of work into into like getting me to where I am today, right? So wanted to give a shout out to those folks. That's life changing. A lot of times doesn't get recognized. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's in, it's invisible labor for sure. Um, Sergio, I wanted to ask you. Um, I feel like your name is popping up a lot when, when we talk about critical language awareness. And I wanted you to take a second and kind of define what this is for people who might not be familiar with it and how it 
can help particularly heritage learners and people um, that might fit more your profile, second generation heritage speakers or individuals alike. Mm -hmm. So to me, um, I think I think so critical language awareness uh, for folks that might not be familiar with it, it's like the ideological positionality of educators and researchers that work in language um, to stand in, in explicit opposition to um, discriminatory ideologies, to discriminatory practices, to it, it's a commitment to um, rework, reimagine, rethink um, the system that we've been given to try and make an impact in long-term sustainable changes um, institutionally so that it's not just a philosophical um, idea, but rather it also transfers into practices that will change curriculum, that will change pedagogical practices, that will um, change our everyday interactions with students so that they feel proud of themselves so that they so we foster linguistic pride in them so that we encourage them empower them uh, foster agency for them to become just like us and by us i mean like the critically aware um, cla educator um, because if we don't get students to to kind of um, gain that sort of awakening uh, to also challenge these ideologies that are so toxic and damaging to our communities, then that, you know, we, we've kind of failed. So we got to get students to also become empowered, right, to, to push back, to get written, um, all of the things that, for example, that I've gone through or the things that they've gone through, right? Like the, the, my, my examples, for example, you know, that I've faced in my own life, CLA has helped me to, to understand it, to grapple with it, to you know, make peace with it, but also to say, not anymore. You know, if I have anything to say about it, that's never going to happen to anybody ever again. So, you know, that's that's kind of my long-winded way of um, explaining you know, how I understand it. Can you maybe give us a concrete example of what that looks like in the classroom? So some of the research that um, I've done with colleagues has really looked at how to develop activities, um, to teach students to see these things for themselves. So it, it involves um, closely looking at um, sociolinguistics, sort of the, what I see is like the foundation of CLA, understanding how bilingualism works, um, just the typical phenomenon that come about when you're multilingual in a, in a society. So it's understanding all of those intricate pieces, but then also looking at the um, subjective side of it, right? How things become, how people um, imbue them with power, uh, with unequitable power, um, how people use it as a tool to dominate um, and how values and beliefs about language um, really do uh, play a key role in society, in institutions, in language policy, um, how we're personally affected by them uh, on a daily basis. And so, for example, we'll, we'll study what, you know, Spanglish is, right, and look at sort of the mechanics of it, but then we'll let students explore their own experiences with Spanglish, their own relationship with Spanglish. What have other people 
what have they said to them? What do they think about themselves? And, and we kind of share in class and, and it becomes a really empowering, uh, empowering experience for them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, one of my, in, in one of our articles, we, we have like a list of activities and kind of, it kind of looks like a curriculum. And so it kind of guides teachers through that. Um, but I think what we're really missing in the field is more materials, textbooks that are CLA based. Um, I think that's key. Um, and also teacher development is really uh, missing too. So, um, and, and of course, for parents, yeah, th there you go. So we, we, we got, we got something coming up in the, in the works and that's really, really exciting. And for parents, I think, um, I think, I think parents could also benefit from CLA um, by just understanding sort of the sociopolitics of language for themselves and understanding how how hard it, it might be for their, you know, kids um, as they're growing up and as they're facing all of these, um, you know, challenges uh, within themselves and also within a, an educational system. Um, it's important to, you know, provide kids with that with that reassurance, right? To to help instill that agency um, for for kids to be able to to fight back, uh, you know, against these discourses that would paint them as less than rather than, you know, being bilingual and, and extraordinary. So, you know, that's something I wish I had in my life growing up. Like one, you know, for a busy parent, is there like one introductory book or article that you would recommend to parents? I, I would point to three, three, three papers that I think were very inspirational to me. Um, I think the earliest a CLA paper in the field of Spanish heritage language education is uh, Glenn Martinez's 2003 article. Um, and he does a really great job at kind of explaining it and, and giving some examples of how you can play with kids and show them, you know, how um, language variation is just so normal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's in our everyday life. Um, and then I would point to Jennifer Lehman's 2005 article, um, which is more about like education. But I, I just find it like so inspirational and so, you know, enlightening. Um, and then I would point to Jennifer Liebman's 2012 article where she really explains what language ideologies are and, and how, how, why they matter so much and how they affect every single aspect of, um, you know, education and, and all, the, all of these ways. Um, I, think, I think those are three fundamental readings to anybody who's looking to jump into CLA and, and really appreciate it and, and want to use it. Okay, awesome. We'll be sure to to link those in the in the yeah. show. And of course my, my edited volume, but you know I, I don't want to make a shameless plug there. <laughs> oh do yeah plug. Sergio sure. yeah edited volume is just that everything that a, one parent needs in one place. Exactly. I want to I want to say thank you for bringing up the role of parents because I think sometimes we we see that right the parents are doing their best because, but because they're uninformed when they're busy or they don't really know how things are so they're first generation immigrants they might not have the language skills to support their children they end up not being able to support their children so we want to kind of like push you and put you in a situation in which maybe one of the second generation here speakers may have been in which they're told that their Spanish is incorrect, right? So like, what would you say to a language teacher 
kind of like on the defend role. Because here. IGA doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Uh, criticize their heritage learners um, for their informal or incorrect Spanish and only focuses on the correct grammar so they can speak better Spanish. Like, what, what would be the message that you would give that teacher and that maybe parents can take after? <laughs> so, so a thought popped into my head about parents that I'm going to yeah. come back to later. And I know we try to keep the, the podcast to like under, under an hour, <laughs> but no, I really share this with you. But to your current question, I thought about this question a lot. Um, and I would tell educators, teachers, that teaching language is so much more than just teaching language. Um, we as educators have an opportunity to make a make a real impact on our students lives on, on, on latinx people's you know success in college to have them live you know have these full and rewarding experiences in college and and to have you know graduation and i think that language education has a key role to play in that process to get Latinx people to finish college and become lifelong learners that are proud of themselves. We, we, there, there is such a missed opportunity by, by the language teaching profession to have a seat at the table of diversity, equity, and inclusion um, initiatives in, you know, U.S. colleges and universities. We're, we're not looking at the bigger picture in our profession. We still think that our classroom is about language. Yeah, we teach language, but it's so much more than that. And people, we have tunnel vision in, in our in our fields, right? In our praxis, um, we we can have such an impact on people of color, and and you know, university language programs are always talking about how we're losing numbers and how we don't get any funding and blah blah. And that's true. We are in a crisis in the humanities. But we also have this opportunity that we're missing, and that and that that's the future of language education, in my opinion. It's having a seat at the table of social justice initiatives. It's not teaching cultura. It's not teaching linguistica. It's using those to advance, the, the, you know, these agendas, right? As as more Latinx people, you know, enroll in college, it's gonna our our, our relationship with um, you know, these, these um, social justice movements is going to become even more high stakes and important for our own survival as, as language departments. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's what we need to communicate to educators that, you know, hey, <laughs> we're so much more than Aiga, Aya, right. Nadien, Nadien, right, Muncho, so what? <laughs> we need to help get our kids to the, you know, cross the graduation stage, and we need to be a, a key part of that. Right. And I'm not saying it's not happening because I see it in my own department and I see it elsewhere, but it's just like it's just missing. Like people, we don't have a vision of the future. I think we're still caught up in how we're being deprived of resources. Mm -hmm. And that's limiting our vision to like these oppor this opportunity, um, and and that's just what I think. I don't know. I don't know if that really came out clear or mm -hmm. it's going to come clear to folks. But yeah, I think the language classroom needs to be about way more than <laughs> correcting people. Um, I get what you're saying. Yeah. 
I want to hear what you have to say about parents. You have that thought before. So, so, so besides critical language awareness, a great part of my research agenda is actually oral corrective feedback. Um, just because I was corrected when I was a, when I was you know in college, and it really impacted me psychologically because I was so confused. And oral corrective feedback is like one of the most challenging, contradictory pedagogical practices that you could ever. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm exaggerating. You know, other experts might disagree, but I think it's a really hard topic to to research in SHL um, because correct feedback and corrective feedback is like such a normal part of like language at any any educational you know context right like students expect feedback right and in the language classroom like like corrective feedback you know is also expected but with shl you know correcting you know students of color is ideologically it's a social activity it's you know ideologically um, loaded and so in my own research i remember asking all these shl students like hey what do you think about your teacher correcting you and they'd be like oh i hate her i hate i hate her when she corrects me and you know she wants to impose her own variety on me and blah 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 um and so they were super students aren't you know they're aware they they don't they don't they know when they're being corrected and they know the intention behind it but when i would ask my heritage student participants like oh well who can correct you right or or who do you go talk to when your teacher corrects you and it doesn't make sense do you go with anybody to you know mm-hmm. you know sort of <laughs> figure it out and use your resource yeah what they would say my mom my mom is the only person that's allowed to correct me oh when my cuando la maestra me dice que um papel no existe for ensayo i go ask my mom to see if that's true Mm-hmm. I think I think parenting and parents have a different like correction happens in different settings and it means different things in different you know situations and I think that a parent correcting a child is not the same thing as like la maestra <laughs> que corrijas o el maestro que oh, corrijas. And if, if you really don't see your variety at school you only trust your community. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, we know that parents can also contribute to um, further stigmatizing um, bilingual variety, like multilingual varieties right. of, you know, Spanish, of course, you know, uh, you know, I, I've gotten teased a little bit for my, you know, usages and whatnot. But when it comes to correcting, like students really trust their parents. They really trust them as like their main caregiver. You know, the, the, the bond between children and parents is different. And, you know, I think we have to have conversations about like, what does it mean to correct your children? And what happens when, you know, you correct, you get corrected at school and you don't understand, like that's really complex. And I think it's really under-examined, um, you know, because we, we always talk about SHL and you know corrections and and it's often put in a negative way right in our field but it's much more dynamic than that right and and heritage students also engage in corrections and correct other heritage learners and blah 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 so it's it's Mm -hmm. it's complex but yeah i wanted to point that out that students really refer back to their parents for that kind of sort of that as that um reference point right reference point yeah that that is super interesting that makes sense yeah. Never thought about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we kind of hit all the questions, but Sergio, is there any, you know, 
last main message you wanted to get get out or anything you wanted us to ask you that we didn't? Um, no, can't think of anything, but um, if any questions come up for any listeners, you know, um, folks are more than welcome to, to reach out, um, to send me an email. Always happy to engage with, um, with you know, folks that are interested in language and in ideology and, and all that. Thank you for doing that. That's... Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, and again, it's Sergio Dosa at University of Oregon would be where they would Google you. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Sergio Loza, um, University of Oregon, Department of Romance Languages. Yep. L-O-Z-A. Okay, so um, thank you again so much, Sergio. It's been a really um, eye-opening conversation, inspirational to see you working hard, changing things for, for people in the future, like making an actual difference in the world. Um, so thank you so much for all of that and for you know this additional hour that you spent with us. It was, it was really nice for me. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Okay, so, so we'll be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Hasta luego. Ciao. If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.